Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Strangers in Jerusalem YouTube channel and podcast where we explore the Gospels and the Jesus traditions within their Jewish contexts. In this third video in our series, in our, in our Jesus's baptism series, we are going to look specifically now at Jesus. We're going to bring him into the picture. The previous videos, we've looked at the context of the geography where Jesus was most likely baptized. We looked at uh, John the Baptist baptizing activities, and we put that, put him in the context of first century early Jewish immersion rituals. And so now it's time to talk about Jesus and put him in this context, uh, in this Jewish context as well. So follow me. Let's go to Jerusalem. talked about in the previous video, we will now try to get in the minds of those who came to, to John the Baptist and specifically Jesus. Why was he baptized? Why did he go to John the Baptist and be immersed by this Jewish guy who many thought was a prophet who also came from a priestly line? First, we have to note that Jesus would have performed his baptism ritual frequently. This is not just a one-time event at the hand of John the Baptist. Jesus would have been performed, or would have been baptized rather, uh, frequently. And a lot of people don't, a lot of my students haven't considered that, that Jesus would have been immersed all the time. It's crazy talk. You're crazy. He would have been immersed, for example, in, in a mikvah, in a full body, you know, tub, basically, on occasions relating to both purity and repentance. And we'll explain this repentance bit in a minute, but he, he would have immersed himself before entering the temple. So before going into the temple, he would have gone to the mikvah and he would have been immersed. Whether he did it himself or had someone else do it, most likely he did it himself. Uh, the first century Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria confirms that this practice was performed not only by priests, but also by the populace. Before going into the temple, Jesus as a Jew who went there with his mother, his father at age 12, and also in the Gospel of John, he went frequently to the temple complex. He would have immersed himself before going in. Other references reveal that non-priestly Jews immerse themselves for various purity reasons, as well as before eating and praying, especially eating and praying on special occasions. The Gospel of John, specifically in chapter 13, assumes a common practice of immersion in the Last Supper episode. In fact, if okay, so here's the text. What it says is, Jesus said to him, one who has immersed does not need to wash except for the feet. But is entirely clean. So a lot going on in that passage. But basically, he's, this is at the Last Supper. He said, "Those who have already been immersed need not to to wash, but except for your feet." Most Christians today, especially those who are unfamiliar with early Jewish practices, see Jesus as being baptized for reasons familiar to later Christians, namely that that Jesus was baptized to fulfill a commandment and to, to specifically for Jesus to set an example. Jesus was immersed to fulfill a commandment and to set an example. That's the common explanation. But note, however, that repentance immersion, as viewed by modern Christianity, modern Christians, was not a commandment for Jews. Such a commandment is found nowhere in the Hebrew Bible. So for Jesus, fulfilling all righteousness, the language, that's the language we get in Matthew 3.15, fulfilling all righteousness would not have come to pass simply by following a specific commandment of immersion. The commandment for converts to be baptized in the name of, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was a post-resurrection injunction that Jesus gave to his followers. And this is at least according to the author of Matthew in, in Matthew 28, 19. In this specific case, Jesus seemed to, to expand early immersion practices from an exclusively Israelite ritual. and exp He expanded this to a far-reaching repentance and initiation ritual for all believers in him. So in other words, 
According to the author Matthew, Jesus seemed to appropriate the Jewish custom of frequent immersion, and he adapted it as a one-time initiation ritual for his post-resurrection movement. But for Jesus himself, immersion was different. It was not a one-time initiation ritual. Jesus was a Jew. His purpose in being immersed was not to follow a specific baptism commandment or to, quote, set an example, unquote, for future Gentile sinners. That's how we today, that's how we read back into it. We, we, that's the explanation we give, because there's theological reasons why we have to say, well, Jesus didn't sin, and therefore he didn't need repentance. Therefore, this was just simply him just doing it for setting an example. I think this cheapens the experience for Jesus as a Jew to go be immersed by somebody who he saw that had authority, and and we'll explain more about what's probably going on. But we got to be careful not to cheapen the experience to just to reduce it to basically, oh, him just going through the motions so that future Gentiles would be like, oh, that's what we need to do. It just seems kind of cheap to me, to, to very superficial to explain it that way. Are you serious? According to the Gospels, Jesus did not minister to Gentiles. He states that himself. Therefore, it would seem strange for him to start his Jewish ministry by setting, in, setting an example of baptism for future Gentiles. His primary objective as a Jew, given the context of the time period, would have been to maintain ritual purity and to participate in collective repentance, or rather, in corporate repentance. Now, what does that mean? What is corporate repentance? Corporate repentance is foreign to us today, but it was salient in ancient Israel. It is the collective process of repentance. Everyone, everyone in ancient Israel, periodically engages in repentance immersions, not necessarily for personal sins, although that could be the case, but for the sins of Israel. Repent! And thou shalt be saved. I explained to my students, our modern world is individualistic. Christians often talk about God in terms of a personal, individual relationship. In ancient Israel, however, the prophets emphasized God's relationship with the entire house of Israel. Now, to be sure, the prophets did not completely abandon repentance for individuals, but their greater emphasis was on the entire nation. The Hebrew Bible is replete with imagery portraying the marriage relationship between God and Israel. Israelite writers often warned that wickedness would bring judgment not only upon guilty individuals, but upon all of Israel. So, for example, a passage in Deuteronomy explains that if Israel observes God's commandments, all will receive rain for their, their fields and, and livestock. Everyone will be, will be blessed. If, however, they worship other gods, the God of Israel will close up the heavens. This is Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21. Just as a quick aside, as we think through this, if you're in ancient Israel and you're and you're thinking about how this works, does it mean that if, ten, if only 10% of the people worship other gods, that then the God of Israel will close up the heavens? What about a third? What if 30% of ancient Israel worshiped other gods? Or what about 50%? Is it not until you get to 51%, a slight majority that worships other gods, that then God will come in and close up the heavens? So it's kind of vague. This is a, an opportunity I tell my students to note that Ancient Israelite literature is very idealistic. It's very binary. In some ways, it's very sensational and black and white. It's meant to emphasize broadly terms that would be very striking for people. And so, yes, it's complete wickedness and complete righteousness, and it's, it's this kind of language. So this is what we get in sermons and, and writings of Jeremiah and, and Isaiah, for example. They, Israelite writers don't deal in the nuances in the gray area. This is, it's very black and white, at least in terms of how they explain it. What I tried to help my students see is that every member of Israel would have been impacted by divine reward or punishment, not just individual righteous persons or individual wicked persons. So here, another example is, while lamenting Israel's rejection of repentance, the prophet Amos 
warned that God would do the same, quote, to you, O Israel, that he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Therefore, quote, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. He's, he's, God here is talking to Israel in a way that, like, as if Israel is an individual. In Jeremiah, God called Israel to repentance and again, talked to Israel as if it's an individual. Quote, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and played the whore there. That's Jeremiah 7, 6 through 24. You can read a lot of that. Jesus was baptized, according to the author of Matthew, in order to fulfill all righteousness, Matthew 3, 15, meaning that he sought to participate with all of his fellow Jews in corporate repentance so, so that all of Israel would be spared divine judgment. And note that repentance is the most frequent commandment and most emphasized theme in the Hebrew Bible. Fulfilling righteousness, that those words, fulfilling righteousness, is directly associated with repentance. Executing righteousness in the land of Israel was a characteristic of the Messiah in Israelite texts. Jeremiah, for example, in, in, uh, included this detail in his sections on healing and the rest on the healing and restoration of Israel. In other words, this is repentance. This is Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, and 33, 15 and 16. You can read in there about how the Messianic Age or Messiah is specifically involved with repentance and, and fulfilling righteousness. If Jesus performed frequent immersion rituals, why then did the authors of the Gospels only highlight the immersion at the beginning of his ministry? It seems that this particular immersion was not the baptism of Jesus, but a baptism of Jesus, one of, one of many baptisms of Jesus. Why then did the authors of Mark, Matthew, and Luke place such emphasis on a ritual that numerous Jews performed on numerous occasions? How would this account of Jesus' immersion, you know, such a, such a common ritual would resonate with the target Jewish audience of the Gospels? That seems odd that the Gospel writers would put that story in there if every Jew perform these rituals. The story wouldn't have any effect. It's not like a healing or some, some other key moment. Every Jew does it. So why did they put that in there? Why such emphasis on that particular immersion? I want to know why. I want to know why. Why? The answer that I propose in my book and, and also in, cla in classroom to students, the answer is that the gospel writers focus on this particular immersion at the beginning of his ministry in order to highlight his authority. This is strictly an episode about authority. So how so? How, how do I come to this conclusion? This account connects Jesus with John the Baptist, whom Josephus recognized and a lot of Jews recognized as one having authority. So it connects Jesus to John the Baptist. It also connects Jesus to Elisha or Elisha, as some people, as we say in English, the prophet Elisha. Number three connects Jesus to Moses. Number four connects Jesus to Joshua. And then number five, it highlights the heavenly voice at the event. Jesus is compared often in the Gospels to Moses. The Gospel of Matthew specifically, Jesus is, is the story is written so that Jews would, would be thinking of Moses. So as a second Moses or Moses's successor, Jesus is named after Moses's original successor, Joshua. Okay, so that's Jesus' name, Yehoshua, Yeshua, it's Joshua. The Jordan River is parted for Joshua at the beginning of his ministry. We're using that word ministry, but when Joshua takes over at the beginning in Joshua 3, the Jordan River is parted for Joshua. The heavens also parted while another Joshua, i.e. Jesus, stands in the Jordan River at the beginning of his ministry. So it wasn't the river that parted, but it was the heavens that parted. Explicit connection between Joshua and Moses is found in the book of Joshua. Here's in Joshua 3, 7, it says, This day... This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so that they may know that I will be with you, Joshua, as I was with Moses. You can see that 
in, for ancient Israelites, Joshua was meant, he was a successor of Moses and was, was compared to Moses. The authors of the Gospels seem to be making the same Moses connection with their own Joshua, who is Jesus. So, in, so again, in Joshua 3.7, God speaks to Joshua and exalts him this day. God speaks and says, Joshua, you're exalted this day. And is that at the Jordan River? Now notice in Mark chapter 1, God also, and also in the other Gospels, God also speaks with another Joshua, Jesus, and exalts him today. So same, same terminology, this day in Joshua, and this day, or today in Mark chapter 1, both at the Jordan River. In fact, specifically, he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, referring to Jesus. Okay, so this is how, we make the, this is how the Gospel writers are comparing and, and associating Jesus with Moses and Joshua. So it's no wonder that according to early Christians, Gabriel commands Joseph and Mary to name their son Joshua as a, as a, as a new Moses, as a second Moses, right? As a successor to Moses. So that's in Matthew 1, 21, and then Luke 1, 31, where Jesus' uh, name is, is, is commanded to be Joshua. Okay? You say Jesus today, that's from the Greek and Latin. Now, in terms of the relationship between, or the connection between Jesus and Elisha, who is the successor to Elijah, the Jordan River is parted for Elisha at the beginning of his ministry. So when Elijah, when, I, when Elijah goes, and by the way, John the Baptist is often compared to Elijah in the text, but when Elijah goes, it's now Elisha's turn to, to carry on this uh, authority. And at the beginning of his ministry, the Jordan River parts. This is in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. This is just like Jesus. Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry, he's at the Jordan River. So basically what we have is three succession stories. We have Joshua succeeds Moses at the Jordan River. We have Elisha succeeds Elijah at the Jordan River. And we have Jesus succeeding John the Baptist at the Jordan River. These succession narratives are important for the gospel writers to make this connection. Now, what's interesting is that all three successors have the same name, the root. All three, Joshua, Elisha, and Jesus, who was also Joshua. So the root letters are Yod, Sheen, and Ein. These are the, it's, it's where we get the word Yesha, the verb to meet, to redeem, where Yesha is he redeems. That's where we get Yehoshua or Yeshua. So that's where that, that word comes from. But also Elijah. If you just stick El, the name of God, on the front of that word, Elisha, is, means God redeemed. This shows us that the gospel writers are using telling the story in a very specific and, and purposeful way. And they, so their objective is to not just preserve a tradition yeah, that, that Jesus was immersed, but it's specifically at the Jordan River, the hands of John the Baptist, to emphasize his authority. Now we will deal with the other elements, the voice of God, and, and we'll, we'll deal with that in the next video. But what this video hopefully has done is to get us into the mind of why Jesus would have been baptized, why did he go find John the Baptist and was immersed, and hopefully some of that makes sense. And in the, the, the next video, the final video, of this baptism series, of Jesus's baptism series, is we will look, go into the texts themselves and pull out all the elements, the opening of the heavens, the dove. We'll look at all those elements and put them in their Jewish context. <laughs>